My name is Sam Johnson. I am the Director of Health Policy and Interprofessional Affairs for the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. And I am privileged to be joined today by Lee Vermeulen and Glenn Schumach, who are guest editors of our recent themed issue on drug pricing and pharmacotherapy. So I'm excited to be here with these gentlemen today. And with that, Lee, I'll kick it over to you to give a brief introduction of yourself. Thank you. I'm Lee Vermeulen. I'm Professor of Medicine and Pharmacy at the University of Kentucky and Director of the Office for Value and Innovation in Healthcare Delivery for UK Healthcare. Glenn? Yeah, I'm Glenn Schumach. I'm Professor and Head of the Department of Pharmacy Systems, Outcomes, and Policy at the University of Illinois at Chicago College of Pharmacy. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate that introduction. And just to orient everybody in our audience for why we're here, today we're having a conversation that relates from the recent themed issue in pharmacotherapy, as I mentioned, on drug pricing, which is a topic that has been increasingly focused on in, in both kind of local circles as well as national health policy circles because it's something that really impacts you know, policymakers, it impacts legislation, it impacts the ability to deliver patient care in some instances, and ultimately it impacts patients. So it's, a, it's an issue of growing importance, and we at ACCP are trying to realize to what extent we can make efforts in this area to either raise awareness or advocate on behalf of, of patient-centered care. So with that, uh, I'll go ahead and open up the discussion with just kind of an overarching question for you two gentlemen, and that is, can you give us some of your, your thoughts about the themed issue. You were both co-editing this themed issue, and is there any content that you found interesting or most interesting or compelling in the themed issue as it sort of generated ideas or, um, you know, other topics for discussion on this podcast? Yeah, maybe I'll start. Um, uh, I guess just stepping back a second and um, – to more maybe more clearly define or 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 more completely define what what the theme issue was designed uh, to include in our call for papers. It, it really was not specifically drug pricing, but um, we we threw out a broader net um, uh, to identify uh, relevant articles that would focus on everything from you know expenditures kind of a, at a uh, population or societal level um, to um, drug costs um, and and that includes pricing pricing of course is what you charge for a drug but um, what's spent at a more global level has to do with both the price and the volume of use and um, also strategies to um, improve or reduce uh, drug costs um, was another um, uh, kind of paper that we were looking for. So we did end up with a wide range of, of articles. Um, we have reviews and original research um, that address a variety of different factors that contribute to kind of the recent um, concern around drug pricing and increased expenditures and topics related to that. Um, we have a couple really well-conducted cost-effectiveness analyses in, in the special issue um, that focus on particular drug classes or therapeutic uh, indications, uh, one by Hammond 
and others focused on stress ulcer prophylaxis in mechanical ventilation. And there's uh, another cost effectiveness analysis by Lamb um, et al. that focuses on uh, drugs used for gastric cancer. Um, we also have uh, original research from Katie Suda that is uh, examination of hepatitis C drug expenditures over time, which of course is a highly relevant um, and uh, very expensive group of drugs. And um, even a paper that assesses, um, you know, a particular intervention and its impact on drug costs from the patient's perspective, uh, focusing on use of vouchers and coupons in physicians' offices. So we have a, a nice mix of original research and then um, quite a number of uh, really well-conducted, comprehensive reviews, um, some that focus on um, more broad topics like cancer drug pricing, which of course is a, a huge um, area to investigate and um, uh, has a lot of uh, important ramifications. Um, and another paper on, on the antibiotic pipeline and its economic ramifications. So those are kind of two real large topics. And then some reviews that, that are more specific, uh, one by Flannery and others that's specific to drug cost issues and critical care. And then um, a paper by McConnell and others that focuses on cost containment in hospitals and acute care settings. So focused more on what can we do to, uh, what kind of um, strategies can we implement to um, reduce drug costs. Um, but all of these uh, provide, you know, sol are based on solid evidence and provide good insights and are really informative, I think, to readers and hope that readers of the special issue will find value in all of the all the papers there, including the original research and and reviews that are there. The the, the special issue when when we were first asked to to, to edit the uh, a special issue in the series on on expenditures and on costs and pricing, I mean the the to me, the most important idea was for the college to make a commitment to this this area of practice and this area of of important research. I, I think a lot of times clinical pharmacists are I think every time in every health system around the United States, clinical clinical pharmacists are pivotal to making an impact on this this challenge, uh, whether it's in keeping a drug budget in line or ensuring that patients have access to expensive medicines or making sure that both of those things can happen with the highest quality. This is really a, a, an area, I think, where clinical pharmacists sometimes don't feel comfortable, where they look at this and say, oh, I don't want to deal with, with medication costs. I really want to just focus on this clinical work and, and getting, getting patients' medicines and making sure that they're used properly. And as an administrator, I can tell you that we we can't do this job of managing drug budgets, managing expenditures without the support and input from clinical pharmacists. And I think that's really uh, a key part of the the value of this special issue, the value of these articles, and and the fact that the college made a commitment and pharmacotherapy made a commitment to this topic, I think is very very important. Hopefully, this isn't the end of this won't be the end of the kinds of articles that we see coming into pharmacotherapy uh, on these on these topics, but really uh, uh, this just the start. So hopefully this is uh, something we see growing in, 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 our, in our pharmacy literature. Thank you, gentlemen. This is, that's a fascinating kickoff. I, I just want to extend this discussion a little bit. So something you just said, Lee, about how important it is for the college and for clinical pharmacists to really engage in this topic as, as a really meaningful effort to, you know, providing patient care. I know in my past 
life as a clinical practitioner. I worked in an integrated health system. and It was sort of drummed into us as clinical pharmacists in the beginning that the, the way that we'd gotten our, our foothold in our ability to practice with the medical group was by really being instrumental in helping them manage costs of care specifically related to medications. And so it was really part of our mission that enabled us to kind of expand our practice and really take on more clinical responsibilities. But, you know, a lot of people argue that, you know, integrated health systems or systems like the VA are different because they're, you know, they're closed systems and it's easier to keep a lid on expenditures and it's easier to, you know, have the ability to negotiate, you know, for lower prices. Um, what, what kinds of things do you think might be good tactics to take to engage clinical pharmacists that are kind of more in the, whether it's in the, the academic medical center, ambulatory care clinic setting or, or inpatient setting, or maybe even private physician practices where, you know, that, that kind of engagement is just as important. It just might not be as, um, you know, I guess, easy to jump into from the practitioner's perspective. Yeah, no, it's a, that's a huge, it's a huge challenge, but really I don't see significant differences in the approach that is needed to managing, to, to manage cost as a, as a component of access, as a component of the overall need for better access, getting more patients access to the medicines and making sure that those are used properly and the quality of the care is there. Whether it's in an academic center or in the inpatient setting, acute care, even, you know, the quaternary level, all the way down to, uh, you know, pharmacists engage in primary care uh, in the ambulatory setting, that entire spectrum. There are challenges around medication costs at every in, in every setting of healthcare delivery, and there is absolutely no substitute for having a clinical pharmacist involved in that process of making sure that you're getting the most for the most number of people with the lowest price and the lowest at the overall lowest cost. And they're just I, I am amazed uh, at how uh, many places we see struggling with medication costs who don't turn to the most logical resource they have, which is their clinical pharmacist. And I think that's something that we, we as, a, as a profession in pharmacy, haven't done a very good job of making it clear to, uh, to our administrators, to, to physician groups and others, that, that this, is, this is a critical resource. Hopefully some of these articles will, will give our clinical pharmacists some, uh, some ammunition or some, some sense of, boy, I really got to put myself out there a little bit more. Yeah, i just add... Um... I mean, I think the days of, of you know, making uh, major um, savings and negotiating prices or even in formulary control um, are over. That that was kind of the low-hanging fruit that where the really sophisticated um, uh, changes can be made and um, I think where uh, we can do and clinical pharmacists have the biggest role um, is, on um, you know, at the point of care where decisions are being made about medications and um, and pharmacists can use their expertise to influence that decision um, or make the decision themselves and um, I, you know make sure that the drugs that are being used are those that are both most effective and um, least expensive. Fascinating. Thank you both for that. So, uh, next question, and maybe we'll 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 skip to a slightly different topic and talk about you know shifting from 
sort of the, the pharmacy practice level, the clinical pharmacy practice level, more towards maybe what, what's going on nationally in terms of trends, specifically related to expenditures by health systems, incurred by health systems, as well as drug prices. Can you both comment on, you know, at what point do we think that the, the healthcare system at large might, might reach a, a place where it's so stressed by these expenditures related to pharmaceuticals that it, it approaches you know, some sort of breaking point where, where something needs to happen to help mitigate the pressure? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I mean, I kind of, uh, you know, I've been in this business now for uh, 25 years, and as I look back, you know, I think that there's been periods where we as a profession of pharmacy have, you know, gone through this consternation where we thought, you know, there, there's no way that drug costs could get higher than they are already, you know, some, you know, drug comes on the market and um, there's hue and cry from pharmacists and some physicians, um, and we always think it's that's the last draw. That's that's you know that the system just can't handle any more than that. I kind of think back to the drug TPA, or when monoclonal antibodies were um, being discussed for septic shock or immune globulins. Um, and of course, more recently, you know, we have cancer drugs that are super expensive, and uh, especially drugs like the uh, hepatitis C uh, antivirals or. PCSK9 inhibitors, but we've just gone through this uh, continual cycle where where a new product comes on the market and um, we think it's outrageous um, and the system can't handle it. Um, and there might be some efforts, you know, around that, uh, even legislative, but those usually um, don't truly come to fruition. And then we move on. Um, um, and the system seems to incorporate those increases, and um, you know, so it's so it's hard to, you know, and every time this happens, and I think right now we're at one of those points again, especially when you consider not just the high-priced new medications, where on on one hand you can argue, and drug companies certainly do, that there's this upfront investment, and these drugs are innovative, and you know, we should be willing to pay more because of the innovation and we have access to these new agents. Um, and all of that, I think, is is not unreasonable. But then we also have these older drugs, generic medications that um, drugs like EpiPen or Daraparam, you know, recent examples, companies like Valiant who have a, a you know business plan of taking cheap generic medications controlling the market and then jacking the price up. Um, there's no val there's not additional value, you know, when those kinds of things happen. It's really just a totally profit driven uh, motivation and um that's really harder to swallow, I think, um uh as both as pharmacists but as patients or uh as a society. And I'm I'm hopeful that um, that that kind of uh, more egregious action is going to lead to uh, some some sort of change because again, it's hard to imagine that our system can keep keep on absorbing those um, additional costs or profits for the pharmaceutical companies without breaking the bank at some point. Um, and there certainly has been some 
efforts on the part of, uh, or at least some politicians who have talked about it, but um, there's really nothing tangible still that's been done. So I'm I'm a little bit skeptical. Yeah, it's it's an amazing thing. You know, you, you I think back for all the years that we've been forecasting expenditures and 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 predicting what's going to happen as as that next incredibly expensive and unfortunately in some cases uh you know low value, you know, low impact for for a small number of patients for a huge amount of money. You keep seeing these products and there's a shock and there's this amazement that you you this outcry like oh my gosh, you know, the drug companies are, you know, incredibly greedy and 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 but then nothing happens, you know. We we just reset our threshold for what we think is egregious, or we reset our threshold for what what we just you know are are are, are, are shaking our hands about, and and nothing really happens. I've I've predicted the you know the bubble will burst with oncology drug costs, or the bubble will burst on some of these specialty drug expenditures where the population of patients that are that benefit from the number from the drug is really low, and it just hasn't happened. And I. I always kind of think back to you know the the time when when you know we when our defense spending in the United States kind of collapsed and we were spending in the Cold War huge amounts of money. The Berlin Wall comes down and and suddenly we're spending a lot less. And I don't know where that Berlin Wall is in healthcare. What what's it going to take to say you know enough's enough? We spend on on healthcare and we spend on medication specifically way way more than any other developed nation. Yet our outcomes are not there. We don't. We don't compete. Uh, we're not the best. We don't have the best outcomes for the expenditures we make. At some point, this is going to happen. And I, I, I look to the presidential election and the new new administration to be, um, you know, a, a, the, maybe the tipping point where we we make such profoundly bad decisions about health policy in the United States. Uh, and and you know repealing the Affordable Care Act without a good replacement, maybe this is the thing that it will take to say we've got to be more, uh, more intelligent with the way uh, we we set our policy. Not having any policy is clearly not the right direction. And maybe this will be the maybe this will be the the decision, the the, the foolishness that's going to happen in the next couple of months uh, in Washington might be the thing that pushes us towards you know ultimately a better system. Yeah, great thoughts, gentlemen. Yeah, I would I would echo your sentiment, Lee, in particular, as I you know occupy a front row seat to that that process as it unfolds here, especially early in the year. So thank scary you for time. that. It's a scary, it's a scary, scary yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely, it is. Um, I, I, I'm interested. A couple of ideas popped into my head after listening to you, Glenn, when you were talking about this. And you know, I've sat in on a number of briefings um, in the last few months that have dealt with the issue of, in particular, drug prices as it relates to primary care. And and some of the same you know examples were mentioned, uh, as you mentioned, like the Valiant example, for instance. Obviously, the EpiPen examples were, were very much uh, highly publicized in the media, and quickly became, you know, sort of poster child, poster children of what's wrong with drug pricing. But, you know, nobody's really come up with a really great solution here. So some thoughts that were put out in some of the various briefings that I've attended um, were around, well, you know, what if we could flip the paradigm so that, you know, part of the payment for drugs was based on actual achievement of outcomes, and, and would that create an incentive for the manufacturer to really 
hone in on things like adherence for patients, uh, making sure the right patients receive these drugs. I mean, many of these new drugs, particularly in oncology and in some of these rare diseases, are really targeted based on whether it's biomarkers or genotype, for instance. And, you know, there's in some ways, while the, the drugs are highly regulated at the FDA level in practice, they're not always as highly regulated, although keeping in mind with the high cost, that's a, that's a huge incentive for health systems to regulate, you know, how these are prescribed and dispensed. But, you know, what are your thoughts about, is there any chance that pharmaceutical manufacturers would ever buy into a a strategy where part of their payment derives from, you know, the, the actual realized achievement of clinical outcomes for some of these really expensive drugs? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think the answer is yes, um, that they would. In fact, um, I believe there are a few instances now um, where they have worked with specific uh, managed care plans to implement, at least on a pilot basis, some of those kinds of programs. And I think in Canada, um, this kind of thing has been done uh, more extensively already. I think what you're really talking about is value-based pricing, um, you know, the idea that um, the price of the drug is tied to the outcome and that, um, and often incorporated into that is that the the manufacturer um, and the payer um, collaborate to basically um, they both go at risk um, for those outcomes and and um, you know if the patient is is not treated um, effectively uh, for whatever reason with with the drug then the the, the pharmaceutical company is um, not paid or paid at a lower rate or whatever um, so I think it's definitely something that that um, you know could happen uh, more in the future and is already starting to happen. I, there's a lot of issues with it, I think. Um, we just wrote a editorial about this. Uh, it was published in the um, January issue of Pharmacoeconomics, January 2017. Um, so if you are interested in more information about, you know, the kind of issues and considerations around value-based pricing, um, I'd refer you to that. Um, I think in oncology, it's... it's um, uh, been promoted even more so, and, and several uh, groups of oncologists have proposed these kind of value frameworks, um, which allow, which would allow presumably um, one to kind of assess the value that a new drug brings, um, which could also help then in terms of how you assign that value-based pricing. Um, so there's a lot of controversy about, you know, how how do you whose criteria or from whose perspective do you use? So um, one patient may value um, lower side effects while another patient may value um, greater efficacy. Um, so everybody, you know, has their own opinion on what's important. And um, so coming up with a, a generic framework um, or a, a process for that, that tries to apply to everybody can be difficult. Um, so that's just one example. Another is that, um, you know, if, if you uh, consider uh, any individual person who might be on multiple medications for um, different diseases, and if, and if in every case uh, these drugs are being priced based on this kind of um, value framework, and if the framework, in some cases these frameworks takes into account, well, you know, what is the 
value of, of your life or the additional years that you will live, you know, there's a lot of overlap perhaps between drugs and, um, and life years. And so, you know, while my antibiotic may save me, um, so is my cholesterol medication. And they both, you know, they're, by both, both of those drugs saving me isn't going to increase my life, uh, isn't going to double my life because um, I can't live past, you know, a certain age anyway. So um, we have to consider also kind of the multiple um, inputs to that uh, and, and how do you adjust for that. But anyway, I think it's a really exciting and, and um, potentially uh, useful area for the future of, of drug pricing. I think there's a you know we you know college is a good example, Glenn. I mean, it, it, we could because we've got we've got good data. You know, we know through cancer registries and through monitoring of of, of cancer patients, we document uh, outcomes really really well, and and it's a fairly clear outcome, right? I mean, we've got mortality, which is a, a you know a, a rare. Uh, outcome to be able to use as a, in that value equation. I mean, we can't use mortality and hypertension very well, for example, because you just need thousands, thousands, and hundreds of thousands of patients to really see an impact on mortality. Uh, but oncology is, you know, different. Because you know, patients patients uh, have mortality or uh, you know other outcomes that are relatively uh, you know clear. But the challenge I think we're going to have when we get into these value-based purchasing, the additional challenge, in addition to the ones you've mentioned, have been like just just having good good documentation, and not just at documentation of what outcomes occur after we put those in place. But if you're going to go into a negotiation with a drug company, or if you're a drug company going into negotiation with a payer or a provider, to have the background data on well, how good does my drug really work? How much risk am I willing to bear as a drug company, or how much risk? Uh, should I be expecting the drug company to bear if I'm a provider or an insurer? We, we, we've got really pathetically bad data to inform those kinds of negotiations. We're going into negotiations really blind on those for those contracts, you know, in areas outside of oncology. And oncology is a good example of where we might be better informed and have a better position from which to negotiate. But then from there, being able not just to figure out which drug or which investment resulted in the better outcome, but even just fundamentally trying to come up with the, the documentation to show where that happened. Uh, is uh, where, where those outcomes occurred in patients is going to be a real challenge. I, I worry about small, you know, we've seen a lot of very relatively kind of small demonstration projects around value-based pricing, but to scale that up to, you know, 305 million Americans, I think it's going to be a, I, I'm kind of skeptical about the value or the, 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 the future of, of, of value-based pricing in general because of those limitations. Yeah, totally relevant and important limitations. Excellent. Just kind of continuing along this theme about the merits of value-based pricing. Obviously, you know we're in a in a policy and legislative environment right now that's that's you know front and center focused on you know what's what's the future of of healthcare and healthcare reform in this country and how do we try to improve that, um, including you know how, how do we deal with patient access to both care and and to therapies that are that are needed to help optimize you know their life. Um, understanding that it's a complex interplay between. You know, obviously, legislation, for example, what's going on with discussion around potential repeal and replace of the Affordable Care Act, uh, as well as regulation. And, and there, I'm thinking about the, the Food and Drug Administration and the regulatory requirements for drugs brought to market as prescription drugs, as well as OTC drugs. Um, 
Are there what insights or what thoughts would you both have if if you were asked tomorrow to be in charge of an effort to sort of streamline the process as it's been to hopefully optimize patient access to needed therapies? Um, what are some of the, maybe the top one or two ideas you'd have to kind of get started with that? I don't think anybody's going to be asking us to take that responsibility. Do you, Glenn? <laughs> I'm thinking no. <laughs> um, wait, I might have to have you repeat that question just to make sure. Yeah, I sure. And, 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 Is it and at the FDA level? Are you, are you digging into FDA level? I mean, in terms of regulation yeah, around I mean, drug approvals and so that so forth. I mean, that's if, that, if that's the if that's the direction we're heading. I mean, there there's very clearly FDA reform that's needed. Uh, we're, 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 we still have uh, a profoundly uh, fragmented and inefficient system for reviewing drugs that is, you know, influenced in many ways uh, by uh, emotion, uh, by uh, advocacy groups saying we got to have treatments faster and faster, regardless of the level of evidence that we we need. We've got continued safety vulnerabilities. We've got continued issues with 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 uh, challenges around the quality of the of, of the medication stream and the medication channels. I, I, there's a, there's a definite need for reform at the FDA level, but I'm my from my standpoint, I worry that it, there any any proposed solution to the regulatory dimensions of healthcare are going to be completely overwhelmed by debates around simply how do we get people access to you know tried and true just routine care even primary care in the absence of of something replacing the affordable care act and the way we manage particularly for the elderly in medicare yeah great thoughts lee and you actually really started to address my actual question. I wasn't trying to to uh, to be unclear, but it was really about, you know, when, when you try to consider the pharmaceutical manufacturer's perspective in this debate about drug expenditures and high drug prices and, and some of the uproar from the public and, and other and other people about, you know, the prices being too high. Um, a, a lot of what you hear from, from their perspective is that there is a significant challenge in the current FDA process for review and approval of drugs, and that that can appear to be, you know, inconsistent, for example, or um, inefficient. And I think you you perfectly addressed that issue as something that you know, indeed, requires some focus on reform as it relates to the overarching issue. Um, one question that did pop up in my head too, and, and maybe this is is not really related, but when you think about pricing for drugs that are over the counter, so many of these drugs were, you know, started as prescription only and then and transitioned to over the counter agents over the years. But interestingly, you know, it, it, when you when you no longer account for the fact that a third party is likely to contribute some payment towards a therapy, you know, obviously the pricing changes significantly, and mm-hmm. and I think that points to the fact that this particular market is is really kind of an artificial market, and so it's really hard to gauge what's what's really a good price for something in a prescription drug arena based on that. I mean, is there any chance at some point that the pricing strategies could potentially evolve to be more like they are for drugs that are over-the-counter? 
I mean, is that potentially a strategy for folks to use to maybe ensure better affordability is to push for certain drugs to be over the counter if they're proven safe enough or effective enough? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. There are certainly other countries where many uh, what we call prescription drugs are over the counter or available, um, you know, a lot um, easier without a prescription. And that does have a big impact on pricing. Um, And, you know, it is an artificial market with the insurer um, paying, you know, part or all of the cost of a prescription drug. Um, And I think, you know, uh, when a drug is over-the-counter, there's also just um, uh, a greater availability of manufacturers then, um, so there's competition. And when you go into a a Walgreens or whatever, and there's all kinds of different um, uh, brands and generics for the same same thing and that's driving the price down um so i think there's a lot there's a lot to that 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 could be a a reasonable approach i also i think you know um you were right about um some of the barriers um to that are created by the fda but i think i mean one of them is just in the generic um drug industry which accounts for you know, 80% or more of all the prescription drugs that that are um, purchased in the U.S. That um, you know, again, breaking down some of the barriers to entry to that. What happens now is, you know, we get um, products where there's just one or two manufacturers that get bought up. There's con- uh, consolation um, across companies, or um, and then you end up with a, a single company making a, a drug without co- competition and then you see these huge pr- price spikes and um, then it's hard for other companies to get in back into that market because of the you know the barriers to entry that are created by um, um, by the regulations so it would be good to you know kind of relook at that and see are there ways that we can ensure that there is competition um, where you know where it should be, like in the generic drug market. I, I find it hard to come up with a lot of sympathy for the pharmaceutical manufacturing industry. To be quite honest, I mean they've 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 uh, you know secured massive profit margins for decades, far beyond what any other industry would. I mean any other industry would dream of really. And you know the notion that you know cutting into their profits is somehow going to limit innovation. I think is a is is a real a real uh, difficult argument to, to to support, and but you know honestly, uh, you've got to, you got to ask that question. What what makes sense about having a, a product you know fall by uh, you know eighty percent when it just simply goes from from prescription to over the counter, and that's a perfect illustration of the pricing by market you know what the market's willing to bear, and when the market bearing the market that is bearing that cost is really the insurance industry. 
that that really that really speaks to uh, the the importance of having smart uh, insurance coverage policy uh, in in driving co- overall costs. Uh, you know, and and the the notion that we take in the Affordable Care Act take uh, you know put more of a of a financial burden on on patients is the whole point is that it it reduces consumption to a more appropriate level and taking that away is going to is, is going to do nothing but drive up costs. Uh, when when fi- when patients have a financial responsibility for the care, it it really does uh, make a difference in 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 the quality of utilization and and the size of the utilization, and it will ultimately also play out. Uh, and I think at the price level. So that's it's not just FDA reform that we got to think about in that in that equation. It's also just our overall uh, health policy and finance policy. Terrific. Well, gentlemen, if it's okay with you, I'd like to kind of lob out one final question for your thoughts and perspective before we adjourn for this session. And, and that really relates to, obviously, we've come together, you know, primarily on the basis of, of your tremendous efforts in, in putting out the special issue in pharmacotherapy on this issue. And obviously, that's a great initial step for ACCP to take as far as raising awareness of the issue among our members and, and starting down that road of, you know, properly empowering clinical pharmacists to really engage in this effort as part of their their practice efforts. Beyond the special issue, what ideas might you have to suggest for the college um, to continue to to get more involved in this area, to continue to advocate for it, both in you know with national health policy health policy leaders and legislators, and with individual practitioners. Well, yeah, I think again, I think this um, this uh, issue is a good start, and I know there's other things that uh, ACCP has been doing in, in the area. Um, before we get off the topic specifically of the of the special issue, I, I guess for listeners, just uh, maybe point out that there are some great uh, articles in the issue, um, um, and that. Um, you know, I think it's worth um, taking a close look at it. There's, um, for those uh, who have interest in or um, focus on, on drug expenditures, there's a great article by um, Aaron Fox and Lynn Tyler that kind of brings together those two issues, which I think are some of the, um, you know, some of the biggest headaches that pharmacists face. Um, but they're very interrelated, um, and a lot of the causes of, of drug expenditures also extend to um, drug pricing, you know, increases. And similarly, some of the strategies to manage those things are um, similar. So I think that's definitely a, a really uh, important article. And like I mentioned earlier, some of these cost-effectiveness analysis, if you're making a decision about stress ulcer prophylaxis or gastric cancer, uh, these kinds of well-conducted analyses can be very helpful um, in deciding, you know, what drugs should be um, given to an individual patient or more on a population level, what should be on formulary or approved by an insurance company. And then also some of the um, reviews that focus on strategies to reduce drug costs um, that really highlight the role of clinical pharmacists um, and in the interventions that they can make, um, whether it's in the critical care setting or in uh, hospitals more generally, um, but also purchasing and and, um, drug um, 
you know, distribution and storage and uh, inventory and so forth and all those uh, other things that can be done to manage costs. So, but having said that, I, I think, you know, this is, again, just the uh, first step maybe for ACCP to uh, uh, delve into this further. There, there's certainly a lot of collaboration that could occur with different groups. We have, um, you know, now I think where we didn't in the past have physician organizations who are interested in and are talking about drug costs, particularly in oncology. Um, but I think that'll spill over to other areas. Um, because of, of some of the really high-cost uh, drugs that affect um, those specialty areas, they affect the patients, um, and then, the, of course, the physicians are are directly impacted um, as well um, when they're hope, hoping that their patients can have access to these things. So working with those groups, of course, working with um, legislators, whether it's uh, at the state level uh, or federally, I, I kind of feel like... Um, you know, state-level efforts might be the most effective in some ways because, um, at least in some states, um, there seems to be more sanity um, and uh, easier access to um, um, those individuals who can influence policy. And um, perhaps that's a way to start, and maybe that bubbles up to the federal level. Yeah. You know, the, the, the college has done, I think, a, a great job of um, promoting and and pursuing a leg, you know legislative efforts that that aim to increase the understanding of the value of a pharmacist in the the process of care. I I don't always know that they're that the argument is being leveraged towards the cost side of the equation, but rather on the quality side of the equation. You know, see, you know, we can we pharmacists are going to do a great job of improving the quality of the care we deliver. Yes, it's absolutely true. But I think there's another argument, and one that probably over the next couple of years are going to become even more important is that we're also uh, really really effective at making sure that that the other side of the equation, the cost side, is also uh, is also a, as good as it can be. Um, you know, the, the finding programming for, at our at our at our meetings, I think, is going to be uh, an important next step. And and really finding uh, not just uh, the the role of the pharmacist in where a lot, a lot of college members uh, practice in, in the acute care setting, but uh, down to the primary care setting, all the way in, you know into the clinics and into the ambulatory setting, and not just in a retail pharmacy way, but in right in the doctor's office as a, an indispensable member of that ambulatory care team, with the argument that this is how we're going to ensure. Uh, a, a strong financial future for those practices uh, is is really really critical. I think more programming and and more work in in demonstrating the value of the pharmacist in that setting is also going to be important. Well, great thoughts, gentlemen. I you know lead to to your recent point there. You, you, I think you're exactly right on. I, I was in fact in a session yesterday focusing on macro implementation, which yeah. is another obviously landmark yep. piece of legislation that hopefully. You know, it is going to be safe despite what happens to, uh, you know, the Affordable Care Act. But, you know, I think one of the things, and then this is directly to your point that's sort of been underemphasized, is that while a big portion of those quality payments, you know, will be based on actual quality, you know, up to 20% of those payments are going to be based on cost of care. And a lot of physician practices, at least according to my understanding, have really struggled with developing strategies to, to really take advantage of that potential incentive. So I think it, it goes directly to your point. Definitely. Well, 
Gentlemen, I just want to give a, a great shout out and a, and a very emphatic thank you to you both for your time and your energy and your expertise. Yep, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Thank you for listening to another ACCP podcast episode. Our theme music is called Rocket Power and is licensed by Creative Commons. Please take a moment to recommend this podcast and subscribe via iTunes so that you'll get notified of when our next episode will be released.